We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, I just kind of like to remind us, we, 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 we have a practice where we binge watch a book of the Bible at a time, very, very often. So we're binge watching the book of 2 Samuel together. Um, as we do all that, let me get logged into my stuff. I felt like there was something else I was going to tell you today, and I can't remember what it was. So the good news is I'm going to be talking to you for a little while, and if I remember it, it will come. Okay. Second Samuel chapter 9. Uh, in case you missed it, this Friday was Valentine's Day. Okay, so gentlemen, if you've been getting weird looks from a woman in your life since Friday, that is why. Okay? Uh, the National Retail Federation estimated that this Valentine's Day, we would spend a whopping $27.4 billion dollars. That's billion with a B. On chocolate hearts and flowers and silly stuffed animals and who knows what else. And so to that end, I offer you this poem called The Day After Valentine's by Faith Sheeran. Love is cheaper now. 50 cent stuffed animals, deflated balloons declare I love you, but not that much. Chocolates melting in their thin plastic hearts. Holidays are arbitrary pressure. Aisles of red light. I am sad the day after anything. But expired love is worse than old Halloween or faded Easter. The bins of passed over kittens and hollow chocolate flowers, like stubs from a movie I saw with a boy who forgot my name. The one who told jokes that weren't funny. The one who was handsome but dumb. All that old love on sale. Less valuable but never free. All that old love on sale, she writes. Less valuable but never free. Uh, This week was our ramp up into the billion dollar holiday originally intended to honor two St. Valentines who were brutally martyred for their faith. And in the ramp up, I saw commercial after commercial for dating apps. One that promised that this is the dating app that you delete. You will find your person and you'll be able to delete it. The other one that promised that you can find your person by using it. And even when it's not Valentine's Day, advertisers use love to sell me all sorts of things. Cars and life insurance and prescription drugs and cheeseburgers. Notice the next time that you watch a commercial that when an advertising executive is out of ideas, they always use love or more likely sex. The two things have become equated in our culture. They will use those two things to sell me anything. On the one hand, ours is a cultural moment all about love. Love is love is the phrase that we see on bumper, bumper stickers and in politicians' speeches. Yet on the other hand, it seems that love has never been harder to find. And as love is commoditized, cheapened, sexualized, and digitized, porn is our country's perhaps only recession-proof business. Oh, and pallets. 
porn and pallets are recession-proof industries. Jenna works in the pallet industry, so. Not the, no, okay, hold on. Wow. Okay. Let's get the band back. Let's start again. Okay, hang on. This is a really good introduction I wrote. Okay, hold on. I love you guys. Sorry. This is, this is, I can't. Woo! Guys, wow, this is bad. Okay. As love is commoditized, cheapened and sexualized and digitized, we get farther and farther away from the essence of love. An essence that cannot be captured by our ecstatic, emotionalized, sentimentalized, sexualized depictions. And so, this morning we come to a question, as we look at 2 Samuel 9, we come to a question first asked by Night at the Roxbury. What is love? What is love? And so to answer that question, 2 Samuel 9. 2 Samuel 9, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Google it if you'd like. Look on your phone, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1. It says, And David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who, when they find success, use all their energy and resources to guard and protect that success. Then... There are those who, when they find success, use all their energy and resources for the sake of others. And it turns out that David is of the second kind. Safely ensconced in his palace in Jerusalem, the kingdom united, its borders expanding by the day. New economic alliance follows new economic alliance. The treasury bank account gets bigger and bigger, more zeros on the end of it. There is worship going on 24-7 in the tabernacle of David. 24-7, David has paying musicians to be in the tabernacle leading worship. And yet David shows that in the midst of all of the success, that he desires to use his position and his wealth not for his own sake, not for the sake of his children or his lineage, but for the sake of others and not just any other. David doesn't wake up one day wanting to show kindness to anybody. He wants to show someone, he wants to show kindness to someone of the house of Saul. David wants to bless his enemy. And he wants to do this for one reason, for the sake of his friend, Jonathan. We first meet Jonathan, the son of Saul, in 1 Samuel. And it's revealed there that David and Jonathan have a friendship for the ages. And what's interesting is that their fates are intertwined. David is God's chosen new king. He has chosen David over Saul and over Saul's house. But Jonathan, Jonathan is the rightful heir to Saul's throne. So here are two men destined for rule. But only one can sit on the throne. And one would think that there would be competition and rivalry and bloodshed and all-out war between their houses, but there's not. Instead, there's friendship. Instead, 1 Samuel 18 verse 1 says that the soul of David was knit to the soul of Jonathan. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David and Jonathan make a covenant together. David and Jonathan make a covenant together. Uh, Jonathan offers his loyalty, Jonathan offers his loyalty to David and his house, 
which means putting himself and his line in grave danger, which is why David swears in that, in that covenant oath to always protect and honor Jonathan, his house, and his descendants. Jonathan dies at the hands of the Philistines. That's reported in 1 Samuel 31, verse 2. But now as we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, decades have passed. But from his throne, David remembers his friend Jonathan. And so David says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And the conversation continues in verses 2 and 3. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Ziba, the servant of Saul's house, is brought before David, and as Ziba gives his report, he admits, he reveals, there is still a son of Jonathan. And in my mind, I, I can see David's eyes widen. I can see his heart skip a beat. He takes a breath inward. Now, see, David had his heart set to show kindness to someone of the house of Saul. It didn't matter who. Little could David have imagined that the one that would be the object of his kindness is the son of his best friend. Little could David imagine that this act of kindness and mercy would bless someone so close to his house, so close to his heart, because by some force of fate and providence, the last living relative of Saul, the last living member of Saul's house is the son of his friend Jonathan who has every right, every right to the throne of his grandfather. Suddenly, this act of kindness takes on complicated political dimensions. Jonathan's son presents David not just an opportunity to bless the house of Saul, it also presents David an opportunity to end Saul's house once and forever. While the supporters of Saul have scattered the four winds by now. There are still plenty in Israel who say, David's not my king. Sound familiar? There are people in Israel who would long to see a descendant of Saul sitting on the throne of the United Kingdom in Jerusalem. So here is this political problem that is made even more complex by the son of Jonathan who you noticed Ziba can't even name. He names him by his disability. There is a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The son of Jonathan isn't worthy of a name in Ziba's mind. He is little more than his ailment. And so David takes all of this in. This political problem, this intention to do kindness to now one of his best friend's sons, And David lets neither the disability nor the threat he poses to the throne weigh in his mind. Instead, this crippled young man, this heir to his grandfather's throne, is not to be the object of David's wrath, but David's kindness. So in verse 4, David sends for the child of Jonathan, and then look at what happens in verses 5 through 8. Then King David and sent and brought him from this place. It's long. Verse 6, And Mephibosheth, turn to your neighbor... 
and say Mephibosheth. Now say it three times fast. Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Don't be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Mephibosheth's name means out of the mouth of shame. A fitting name for the crippled son of a crippled and defeated royal line. Second Samuel 4 verse 4 tells us how Mephibosheth became crippled. After, David, after Jonathan and Saul were killed, his nurse took him up and fled. And as she ran, the five-year-old Mephibosheth in her arms, she dropped him. He fell. His feet broke. They weren't bound properly. He's been crippled ever since that moment. And as crippled Mephibosheth comes into the presence of the king, he comes not with excitement, but terror. What goes around comes around, what we've learned to say. And now for Mephibosheth, what went around is coming around. As the last living member of Saul's family, he expects that David has come to execute his vengeance He expects that David has come to execute his wrath. And as Mephibosheth goes into the presence of the king and falls before him, a particularly difficult act for a crippled man to do, a particularly painful act for a crippled man to do, David is the first person in 2 Samuel 9 to utter his name. Mephibosheth, David doesn't see a crippled man of a fractured dynasty. He sees a human being created in God's image. He sees dignity. He sees personhood. As Mephibosheth shakes on the ground, expecting his life to end at any moment, David says three words, do not fear. Do not fear. I've not come to execute vengeance. I've not come to execute wrath. I have come to execute kindness toward you for the sake of your father and my friend, Jonathan. That is David's insistence in this text. Three times, three times, I want to do kindness to the house of Saul. Three times in verses three, in verses one and verse seven, one, three, and seven, David says, I want to do kindness. But here's my problem with the word kindness. Kindness flattens the meaning of the word that's being used here. The word that is being used here, it's translated in the ESV, the NLT, uh, the NIV, the message as kindness. But it is a Hebrew word, chesed. It comes from the back of your throat, chesed. It's used 200, and how many times did I say? I've got it on here. Maybe. No? There we go. Show that to me. Perhaps. Okay, if not, I've got notes. What's that? 
There was 243. Art's a translator. He would know this. Yeah, just your magical sign. It's like 246 times in 239 verses. It is the primary way. Let me get back in the pocket here. It is the primary way that the Bible describes God's relationship to his people, chesed. Eugene Peterson says, the word translated kindness in our text is one of those large Hebrew words that radiates a spectrum of meanings like a rainbow of colors from a diamond in the sunlight. Kindness, love, steadfast love, covenantal friendship, loyal love, justice. It is a favorite word among the psalmists to convey God's characteristic relationship with us. It is a favorite word of the prophets to designate our most appropriate relationship with one another. The story of David and Mephibosheth conveys many of these meanings. And he says this, this is important. A story is better than a definition. Why is the Bible, don't worry about it, Dan, just let it die. Um, Be gone. Why is the Bible full of stories? The vast majority of scripture is not if-then statements. It is not logical arguments. The vast majority of scripture are stories. The wisdom of God and the genius of Jesus, by the way, is that stories define better than definitions do. And the story of Mephibosheth and David is a fundamental definition of what chesed, what is love. 246 times in 239 verses in the Old Testament, this appears, like places like Exodus 34-7. The Lord lavishes unfailing love, chesed, to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Isaiah 16-5, in overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 9, uh, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices chesed, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Psalm 23, 6. Surely your goodness and chesed, mercy, steadfast love, will follow me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Lamentations 3.22, the chesed, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Ruth is praised for doing chesed first to her mother-in-law and then to her husband. Nehemiah does chesed by leading the people of Israel to restore Jerusalem's wall. Daniel is shown chesed when he is given favor on the house of Nebuchadnezzar. Esther is given chesed when she pleased for the lives of the people before her king. Ezra is given chesed when he leads the people back to the promised land to build the temple. Hesed is the foundation of God's relationship to us and the ongoing outworking of it. Out of his hesed, God is drawn toward a sinful people, establishes a covenant with them, and when they break the covenant, not if, when they break the covenant, it is God's chesed that leads him to chase them and bring them back into the covenant grace. The foundation of the way that God works in the world is through Hesed, And by David offering Hesed to Mephibosheth, he shows himself to be a true Israelite. He shows himself to be a true covenant partner. He shows himself to be the ideal person, the person who really is after God's own heart in the way that he executes Hesed towards this broken person. It's not kindness. It is the, it's the way that the world works. It is the fundamental principle of all things at work in David. 
And so how does chesed take shape for Mephibosheth? Well, first, David restores all of Saul's land and property and riches to Mephibosheth, this man who begged for meals, who before coming into the presence of the king had no future and no hope. No future, no hope. He, he gives this man an income. He gives this man a future. Psalm 112 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. This is David. Second, we find that Mephibosheth is given a place of honor at David's table. Mephibosheth, who just moments before meeting David, had no future, no hope, is now given a place of royal privilege. He sits at the table of the king now. This broken man, nobody would speak his name at the beginning of the story. And now Mephibosheth is his name, eats with the king by the end of the story, this king has recognized and dignified him and welcomed to his table all in the name of chesed, all in the name of covenant loyalty and steadfast love, which is profoundly challenging to the way that you think of love and the way that I think of love and the way that our culture defines love because our culture has romanticized and sentimentalized and privatized love. Guys, weird day is what we're having. This is what Valentine's Day is all about, isn't it? This, this ecstatic, sentimental, sexualized ideal of love. And ironically, our culture's attempt to highlight and elevate love has actually made, in the words of that poet, it's made love less valuable. Our culture glosses over and brushes over the deeper and more rugged and even these ruthless sides of love. The love that keeps a spouse behind her, beside her husband as he fails. The love that springs from late nights with crying babies. The love found in simple acts of service. The love found in forgiveness after betrayal. The love found in keeping a life together and manageable. Listen, there are different kinds of happy. And that early, excited kind of happy comes and goes and is unpredictable. And when we locate love solely in emotion and sexuality, we lose the biblical contours of love. We lose the biblical contours of steadfast love. Steadfast love that remains unshaken through all of life's seasons, whether in marriage or in friendship or us being in church together for 35 years. When I was a youth pastor, I did a series uh, at my youth group called Words Christians Use, and we did one on the word love. And my college roommate, Josh, came and did that talk, and I remember him saying, I'll never forget it for the rest of my life, he said, love is not a feeling, it's an action, but it's also a feeling. And what we have done in our culture is said that I can feel my way to better actions, and as any trained therapist can tell you, you can actually act your way into better feelings. What we have done in our culture is remove the contours of steadfast love, again, whether in marriage or in the workplace or in church. And what we have done is we have put the burden for being loved on you, not on me. So I talk about you and how difficult you are to love as if that's your problem, but the failure of love is on my part. It's on my faculty to love. That's what's wanting. This is why I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. 
He says, don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. (laughs) In other words, fake it till you make it. As soon as we do, we find one of the great secrets that when you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. We spend so much time wringing our hands and excusing ourselves from loving this person or loving that person. We leave churches, we quit jobs, we quit marriages, we quit relationships because they're just too hard to love. And by the way, if you want to have a conversation about boundaries and enabling at another time, we can. All I'm saying is that we also use the boundaries and enabling conversation to get ourselves out of the relationships that Jesus chases after. And chesed, chesed is defined not by loving the lovable or loving the likable, but loving the enemy. Here's what's interesting. Mephibosheth appears four times in this text. I've told you about two of them. When we find out that he broke his feet and we became crippled, when David invites him into eating at the table. But then later on in 2 Samuel, and we'll get here in a couple weeks, just like in 1 Samuel, David has to flee Jerusalem for his life. And it's not Saul chasing him down now, it's his own son. And Ziba, the servant in Saul's house, comes to David and says, by the way, Mephibosheth betrayed you. Later on, when David comes back into Jerusalem and is reestablished as king, Mephibosheth comes to him and says, Ziba betrayed you, not me. And what's fascinating is David does not hold court to find out who's right or who's wrong. He invites both of them back into fellowship at his table and moves on. David gathers around his table at least one person, if not two, who would like to see him dead. He gathers his enemies. This is unthinkable because we spend so much time, so much time protecting ourselves from harm that to invite someone to our table now that we we would never... We would never invite someone to our table to eat with us if we knew they were going to betray us. That's exactly what David does. Let me tell you about another table and another king. And when the hour came, Jesus was reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. As the final meal that Jesus has with his disciples goes on, one gets up and leaves the table. John says it was night. Jesus dines with sinners. Jesus dines with betrayers. And if the Bible is one story pointing to Jesus, then here is how the story of Jesus is found in the story of David and Mephibosheth. Jesus eats with betrayers just as David did. And you and I in this story play the role of Mephibosheth. The moral of 2 Samuel 9 isn't be really nice to people. That's not the Bible. The moral of the story is that you and I are Mephibosheth. We are crippled, not of body, but of soul and spirit. And Jesus comes to us, and we are awed by his power, fearful of his might. Yet he grabs us and binds up our wounds and invites us to eat at his table. The story of Mephibosheth is the story of you and me. 
Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, when we were crippled, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, we will certainly be saved from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. I uh, had a conversation a few weeks ago. And somebody said, hey, you said something in passing the other day. You said that we are God's enemies. How can that be true? I said, Romans 5 says we were God's enemies. We were Mephibosheth. There was no reason that God had to show kindness on us except for chesed, except for the steadfast love of the Lord that creates this internal drive in him to draw us near. If we were saved by the death of his son while we were soul's enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. And when you turn the pages into Revelation, which tells us of the last things, heaven is pictured as a meal. We gather around the table of the king. In this life, we are given one task to go and find the Mephibosheths and bring them to the table because we are Mephibosheth. And so a warning, if you think that you have gotten here on the, on the back of your effort and good deeds, you're wrong. You're Mephibosheth, you're crippled, you're broken, you cannot drag yourself to the table if you wanted to, but Jesus has brought you to the table by the blood of his covenant. Let me pray and we'll gather around the table. Jesus, you invite us to your table today and draw us, invite us to draw near to yourself. And we can do that because you have drawn near to us. Jesus, it was not by might or by power that we came to this table, it's by your grace. So we want to revel in that. We want to share that with others. We want to say to those in this room that have not yet experienced, come back to God. Come to the table.